morning. I think this is week seven, perhaps, of our stay home, stay healthy uh, mandate. And you're, uh, you've been doing such a wonderful job as a community of staying in touch, although we are apart. And we want to welcome you this afternoon to our broadcast and to a new series that will be beginning here at the University Church. This morning, I sit here, and by here, I mean I sit um, on the platform here at the Walla Walla University Church in southeastern Washington. And this morning, you are also here. Perhaps your here is a sofa. Perhaps it's a bed. Perhaps it's an RV. Perhaps you're sitting in a car. Maybe you're on your exercise bike, but I'm here and you're here in different places. Yet, it doesn't take much in our circumstances to move us from being here to going there. And by that, I mean uh, moving from a place where we feel settled and where we feel in control to moving to a place where we feel a loss of control and we feel unsettled, to move from being here to going there. And this morning, as we all experience collectively the loss of this global pandemic that brings to our life, whether it's a concern for the loss of a job or concern for our health or concern for the health of a loved one, whether it's physical distancing, whether it's changing practices that we have to incorporate into our life, all of us are feeling the toll of the time. We find ourselves experiencing what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, called the five stages of grief. And yes, we know that those five stages are not linear, nor are they equal in the way that they affect us. But we find ourselves experiencing perhaps a sense of denial, of anger, of bargaining, of depression, of acceptance of the times in which we are living. And all of these have a toll on our mental health that is non-trivial. And whether it's the strain of prolonged close confinement with family that you really have not spent that much time with, having to put pause on being in school and go back to a bedroom that had been doubling as a study and a storage room and trying to carve some space out to be able to work, or whether it's feeling the acute pain of being isolated from those that you love and you depend on and the community that gives you strength to continue. All of us are facing a time of stress and of worry. And so for those of us who are prone to struggle with anxiety, a global pandemic only makes that more acute. And so we can move from being here, being present, being non-anxious, being in control, to being there. And by there, I mean a place of loss, a place of fear, a place of catastrophizing about what is going to happen in the future. And here's the thing. As I think this afternoon and as we think together, I think all of us would say that we have been there before. And some of you may be listening and trying to figure out, Andreas, what exactly are you trying to say? Just follow me. 
We've been there before after a meeting with HR. And nobody wants to have meetings with HR. We've gone there before after we have come from a meeting with our child's counselor at school. We've been there before when we have gotten off the phone after the doctor has delivered news that we really dreaded. And we've been there before after we come home after a graveside service. And when we go there, we feel a sense of loss, a sense that we aren't in control, a sense that something has been taken away from us that we cannot replace. And what do you do when you're in the middle of a desperate situation that you are unable to solve yourself? What do you do when your carefully mosaic plans slip through your fingers, crash onto the floor, and splinter into a thousand jagged pieces, and your future is uncertain? Is there a way for us to not just go there, that place of uncertainty, of loss, of anxiety, of a lack of control, but to be able to go through there and to be able to come out of the other side? Is there a way for us to be able to live our lives when we feel desperate and at a loss? And here at the University Church for the next six weeks, our spring series, Waymaker, We'll be exploring some biblical narratives where we see a God who is able to take us through when we have hit the wall. We're going to explore stories of a God who is with us when we are ready to give up, when we're ready to throw in the towel, when we're ready to tap out, when we're ready to call it quits. We are going to look at stories of a God who is with us when we're ready to wave the white flag at life and to quit. And we will turn our attention to a God who intervenes in improbable, sometimes even impossible ways. So we want to make sure that you join us for these next six weeks as we go through this series, Waymaker. And for those of us who are joining, um, joining us today on Facebook, we're going to encourage you, if you know of someone in your life who would benefit from hearing about the way that God is able to intervene in improbable situations, just go and hit share and make sure this live stream goes to them. Start a watch party, send it to their inbox so they can hear about a God who can intervene even in improbable circumstances. If you're watching on live stream, if you're watching on YouTube, we encourage you to copy the link and to share it with a friend or with a family member who you know is particularly discouraged. So today, we're going to be turning to our uh, narrative for the afternoon, and it's found in Matthew's gospel, and it's a story that if you have grown up in church, if you have any sense of familiarity with the Bible, you will be aware of. It's Matthew chapter 14, and it's Jesus feeding a large and desperate crowd. 
We're going to read now from Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And then verse 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And so Jesus Christ enters a situation with a group of people who are desperate. But before we go any further into the story, I think it's important to go to verse 13 and look at the transitional line which brings us into this narrative. And that line is, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. So if you're reading this, the question you should naturally ask yourself is, what did Jesus hear? Because Matthew is telling us Jesus heard something which moved him to a particular action. What did Jesus hear that made him move to this place? Now, if you read Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through to 12, Matthew delineates his cousin, John the Baptist, being murdered by King Herod at a feast. It's an awful scene. His cousin the one who had grown up with him, the one who had been given the same promise of the Spirit of God to be a partaker in the promise going to Israel, murdered by King Herod. And so when Jesus hears this traumatic news, when Jesus hears this startling announcement, he moves and he departs. And the juxtaposition couldn't be more ironic or powerful in this moment. And so Matthew invites us to focus on one more episode from the lifestyles of the rich and the shameless. And so we find that in the next scene, he fastens our attention from the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, and now he is portraying a desperate scene of poor, sick, hungry, marginalized people looking for relief. It's like jumping from an episode of the Kardashians to seeing a news report of refugees. It's like what happened when COVID-19 started and we went from David Giffen putting on his Instagram page, sunset last night isolated in the Grenadines, avoiding the virus. I'm hoping everybody is staying safe. You know, he sent a drone up there to get this shot of his yacht in the Grenadines so he could stunt on people about how rich he is and how all of you are stuck at home, but he gets to be on a yacht. Of course, everyone was mad at David Giffen, so mad that he had to delete his Instagram profile. But it would be like going through your Instagram profile, seeing David Giffen's lifestyles of the rich and the famous, and then scrolling, and the next thing you see is this. Seeing frontline health workers who don't have enough protective personal equipment putting hefty bin bags over their uniforms so they can go and help people who are dying of coronavirus. This is the kind of juxtaposition that Matthew makes 
in chapter 14, he takes us from this horrific story of his cousin, of Jesus' cousin being killed, and then he takes us from the court of Herod to desperate people in a field. Matthew is indicating by these two contrasting scenes just what kind of God Jesus represents. In the first centuries, gods aren't normally supposed to care about people like the crowd. Who cares about crowds? The gods of ancient philosophers, for instance, were considered dispassionate and so were regularly given cozy names like the unmoved mover or the first cause. And at the other end of the spectrum, the Greek and the Roman gods were notorious for being capricious and using human beings as playthings and for ordering the world to their whims, depending on the day of the week or what side of the bed they rolled out of. Those gods would play with humanity. So at best, the gods of the ancient worlds were supposed to take the side of the rich and the powerful, to stand with people like Herod and to be with him and his well-fed party guest, sanctioning their exploitation of the poor and even the bloody murder of the truth teller like Jesus' cousin, John. What the gods were definitely not known for, absolutely categorically not known for, was to be with crowds of hungry, ordinary, downtrodden people. And yet, this is where we find Jesus Christ, with the hungry and with the desperate. And he's there with his disciples. And he turns to his disciples and he says to them, in Matthew chapter 14, 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late, send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, food scarcity, as we call it, you know, when you're in a food desert because there are no places you can get fresh produce within a certain amount of time. There are places where it's difficult to get the sustenance that you need on a daily basis. Food scarcity wasn't just known in the ancient world. It was rampant. And so the disciples' suggestion that these hordes of people go out and buy their own food it's ludicrous. Peter and the disciples may as well have said, Jesus, can't they just get Instacart to deliver food? Can't they just order Chipotle on their app? They would have had just as much success doing that as they would, leaving a deserted place, going to a nearby town and buying their own food. It was not realistic. They were far out. They had been out the entire day. And most of them probably didn't even have the money to buy food in the first place. And yet when I read the story through the lens of desperation, you find there are multiple people in the story who are desperate. The crowds are desperate because they have no food and no way to get food. And now the disciples are desperate because they have been charged and deputized with fixing a problem which is beyond their ability to fix. And so they are desperate for help because here is a problem that we should fix, but we cannot fix. 
And so in their desperation, they just start talking gobbledygook. Send them away. Let them find their own food. And then Jesus, in this story, countermands his disciples in six words, at least in the English translation. Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat, Jesus says to the disciples. And it's so interesting because Jesus says something which makes no sense. And so the disciples respond in verse 17, and they say to Jesus Christ, I think in the same way we would say, they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. They're like, Jesus, this is an unsolvable, desperate situation. What are you asking us to do? This is an impossible situation. And so the disciples are not sufficiently prepared to take care of their own needs. And now Jesus is asking them to extend themselves to look after other people. Are you kidding me? I can't even figure this out for myself. And now you want me to have the energy and the emotional capacity to think about other people in a desperate situation. This makes no sense, Jesus. Isn't this a challenging window into the God, into the heart of the God that we serve? That God doesn't allow the scarcity of life to shrivel his always generous heart, to stop him searching for ways to be abundant in his blessing. And so although the disciples in this scene see a dead end, Jesus Christ looks at the narrative, looks at the situation in a different way, and instead of seeing a dead end, Jesus sees a doorway. And it's good to know that even when we only see dead ends, Jesus can see doorways. And here Jesus Christ, looking at the doorway, turns to his disciples, and the key to unlock the door is trust. It's to trust him. Look at what happens. Matthew 14, 18, when the disciples tell them, we only have five loaves and two fish, he says, okay, bring them here to me. Jesus says, give me your resources. Trust me in this moment of your desperation, in this moment of the complexity of your situation, that I will be able to take what you have and multiply it. Turn over what you have left. Trust me to take care of you. That is Jesus' message to the disciples in that moment and to us today. Verse 19, Jesus continues, and this is actually my favorite part of the story. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. What a picture. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, with scattered sheep looking for food to eat, comes to these hungry sheep, these desperate people, and he doesn't treat them like sheep. In fact, he doesn't treat them as any less than guests at his royal table. And so he says to them, sit. And the word sit sounds so pedestrian. Jesus is actually telling them to recline. He says, look, recline, sit back, get ready. 
be in a posture of expectation. And for us who don't recline often in our life, this may not mean much, but when you go to your grandma's house, right? You go to grandma's house, or you go to that favorite uncle or aunt's house, and after you've been there for a while, they say, come and sit at the table. And when you come to the table, you see that they have brought out cloth napkins, china plates, a fork and a knife. They have the fancy goblet that they put water in. You know something good is going to happen. And so Jesus Christ does the same thing. He sets the table on a sweeping grassy hillside and he says to the hungry, desperate people, recline, sit down. Put yourself in a posture of expectation that in the middle of an impossible situation, God is going to do something that you thought impossible. And so Jesus invites them to trust him. Jesus invites them to be in a position to receive God's improbable gifts. And Jesus does the same for us today. In the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our dead ends, in the midst of hitting the wall, Jesus Christ sees our hunger, sees our desperation, and I think he is inviting us into the same posture that he did for these people, a posture of receptivity and of expectation. Jesus invites us to be in a posture of quiet repose and rest, that he sees our desperation, that he knows our needs, and that he is present. And so Jesus Christ invites us to rest, to meet our hunger and our desperation. And I wonder this afternoon where your place of desperation is. Where is your place of desperation this afternoon that caused you after months or perhaps years of not watching anything to do with church because you are so hurt by church people that you are watching this afternoon? What desperation has driven you to pay attention to God in ways that you haven't for years? What makes you desperate this afternoon? Jesus invites you to trust in him, in your hunger for safety, in your hunger for assurance, in your desperation for community, in your desperation for healing, in your desperation for clarity about what's going to happen to the job market after you graduate, what's going to happen to your internship this summer, what's going to happen for your wedding. Jesus Christ says in your desperation, trust me. Recline, repose, rest. Jesus sees you. He has not forgotten you. He is present in your moments of desperation. He is present in your moments of hunger. And his heart, as we're told in verse 13, is moved with compassion for you. He doesn't look at your situation dispassionately. He doesn't say, well, there's billions of them. Someone's got to suffer. No, Jesus Christ's heart moves with compassion as he sees your desperation and as he sees your hunger. Verse 20 to 21, it says that Jesus Christ is able to 
bless the food which is given and give so abundantly that they all ate and were filled, this desperate, hungry crowd, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus Christ makes a way through desperation, through the desperation of the disciples' fear, through the desperation of the crowd's hunger, Jesus Christ gives them enough. Jesus Christ makes a way where there seemed to be no way. And Christ made a way then, and he can make a way now. Christ made a way then, and he can make a way now. Now, there may be some of you who've watched and who've listened and who've been unmoved, and that's fine. This message is not for you. If your barns are well filled, if oil runs down your head, if all is well in your home, we bless the Lord for the abundance that you have. But there are some people who are desperate amongst us. There are some people who are hungry in our community. There are some family members who are on the edge and they need to know that Jesus can make a way through desperation. And there are some of you who are caregivers and who, like the disciples, have been deputized with the lives of other people, but you cannot give them the same help you used to be, that you used to be able to give to them. You can't go to Western Union and send the same amount of money you did to your relatives in another country who depend on you anymore because you don't have the same hours at work. You don't have the capacity to love and to be patient and gentle with your children because they are there 24-7 now and you are desperate. Jesus shows us he can make a way when we are desperate. And as we prepare for the table, in case you didn't know, we're going to give you plenty of time because at the end of this service, in just a few minutes, we are going to come to the table. We're going to celebrate communion together. It's going to feel a little strange, but we're going to do it. But before we get there and we come to the table and then we also have a, a song which is going to be given to us, we're going to show you a conversation that I had this week over Zoom with a friend of mine, Kaylin. Now, she's a teacher in our community, and I said, we need to uh, record your story and show how God was able to work through your life through an improbable situation. I want to give you a heads up when you watch this video. We recorded it on Zoom. The quality looks like it was from 2001 with dial-up internet. Don't worry about it. The quality may be poor, but the content is rich. And we're going to see in this story as Kaylin shares how God was able to work in her life through an improbable situation. And then following that interview with Kaylin, we're going to have a song, a song of response called You Made A Way. No, in fact, I'm so sorry. The song is called Waymaker, Waymaker. So after the interview, you'll then hear a song called Waymaker, which will also be recorded. And it's going to be brought to you by Pastor Cameron Fitzgerald, recent Walla Walla graduate, recently installed as the pastor of Adventist Fellowship, um, uh, the place Adventist Fellowship in Thousand Oaks, California, 
and he will sing the song Waymaker as a response. So during that interview, during that song, you'll have the opportunity to go and to get what you need. But at this time, I'm going to invite you to turn your attention as we watch this interview together of how God made a way to an improbable situation. So today is part of our series Waymaker that we're starting at the Walla Walla University Church. We want to uh, find some stories within our community of times when God has worked in improbable, impossible situations where it seemed like there was no way out and God was able to come through in a really um, significant way. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Kaylin, who is going to share a story with us about how God worked in her life at some point that was really improbable. So Kaylin, over to you, share the story um, of, of that experience in your life. Yeah, so when I was 20 years old, I moved up to Walla Walla. I'm from Salem, Oregon originally. Well, mm-hmm. I had been living here for three months and I was at a friend's house and I was hanging yep. out with the kids and I was jumping on the trampoline and um, I, I blew out my knee. I tore my ACL, my MCL, and my meniscus um, to the point where they had to have like two guys carrying me. I'm not a small human. They had to carry me from the trampoline into the house. They took me to the doctors and the doctor was like, yeah, so here's what's happened. Um, Hmm. We can either do the surgery, which I can't do for like another week, or you can kind of see if it like does its thing naturally. And I was like, wait, wait, hold on. Your your doctor's saying it will see if it does its thing. So I watch um, football, soccer and basketball. And whenever we hear a player has blown an ACL or all of the other things you mentioned, this triad of death, it means you're not walking and it's going to be a long time. No one ever just says, let's just see if it will do its thing. Yeah, so it, it was a minor meniscus tear. The ACL was almost completely gone, uh, like, gone, like the, the connection. Um, and so he basically he wanted to wait to see for the swelling to go down. To okay. See, like how bad exactly it was. I see. Yep. I want to like, see it play out. Um, well, as a reminder, I'm a 20 year old person i'm living in like some random person's basement barely like making enough for food and i didn't have a car at that time i was walking everywhere i went um and you can't walk very well with a blown out knee (laughs) and i worked at starbucks and so i had to be there at 4 30 in the morning oh and then i also worked at a restaurant which i was there until usually midnight or one o'clock in the morning so i didn't get a lot of sleep it was pretty crazy and i was just kind of keeping my nose down and i was like lord like i don't have money for this Hmm. I I can't take time off of work. I haven't been here long enough to be like, hey, I need a couple weeks off. Um, Mm -hmm. If I took a couple weeks off, they would just replace me and I wouldn't have a job again. And then I watched um, Dwight Nelson. Um, Yep. I watched one of his sermons. I can't remember what it was, but I watched a sermon one Sabbath morning and then I fell asleep that afternoon. When I woke up, I felt like God was telling me to trust him. And it's interesting because people often say that God is like this like small, quiet voice. Yeah. And it is super true. It was, it was almost just like an impression that I got, but I was way too fearful to have walked on my knee because I remember how bad it hurt. Hmm. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. And I felt like this need to just try it out. Um, and so I put on my brace and I walked without my walker. I literally just like took steps. And the first step was very ginger. 
Um, but I was like, okay, I, I can bear weight on my knee. Yep. And I, and I didn't think I could. So it was about three and a half to four weeks from the initial accident. Yep. I had my MRI scheduled. And when I went in for my MRI, um, the doctor met with me afterwards and he's like, why, why are you here? Oh. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Why am I here? What does my chart say? And he's like, yeah, but your MRI shows that there's no damage. Oh. And I was like, what do you mean? So we had to get a second MRI, super expensive. Um, he, so he ordered a second MRI. We got a second MRI and again, there's nothing wrong. So he's like, I'm going to take off your brace and I want you to walk. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, I don't want to push this. He's like, no, I want, like, I, I don't think something's wrong. And it, nothing was wrong. I was able to walk. I still walk. I never needed surgery. I never needed any physical therapy or anything. My knee was just better. Wow. And after a doctor told me I had torn my ACL, my MCL, and my meniscus for in four weeks for the MRI to show nothing wrong, quite impressive, quite, quite impossible. Oh but I think the Lord was very clear that I did not have money for surgery and I did not have like anything to do. So, so I mean, that is a, that's a, the first word that came to mind was crazy. Not, not a particularly um, oh, so true. delicate word, but that's incredible. Me. Mm-hmm. 
miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, and 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 that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you work. When I don't feel it, you're working. Never stop, you never stop working. Never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Never stop, you never stop working. Never stop, you never stop. And even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop. Cause you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, and that is who you are, and that is who you are, and that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are, and that is who you are, and that is who you are. Thank you for continuing to be with us as we transition to the table of the Lord. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 that we just spoke about was an interesting passage and a deliberate one that was picked for us today because it foreshadows the Last Supper. There is bread, there is fish, Jesus takes control of a meal and then he hosts the meal and he blesses the food and he gives the food to his disciples. And Matthew is very careful in his language. If you read the feeding of the 5,000 and the Last Supper, you see that there is this really, um, there is a real sense of foreshadowing. Matthew talks about Jesus taking loaves. He talks about things being blessed, being broken, and being given to disciples. And then he speaks about them all eating all of it. And so if you go to Matthew 14 and you look at this passage and then you contrast it with Matthew chapter 26 and the Last Supper, you see Jesus at work in both scenarios. And what you find in both of these scenarios is that they are linked 
by the use of food in the dispersal of divine blessing. And so in Matthew, with the feeding of the 5,000, with the feeding of the people who are desperate, food is used as a dispersal of divine blessing. And then at the Last Supper, with people who are desperate and don't know what the future hold, food is used as a dispersal of divine blessing. So today, we come scattered, a few people here in the sanctuary, uh, maybe a couple of people at home, or perhaps you are by yourself. We're scattered. But we come to the table of the Lord. We can have communion with Christ. And today, whatever kind of bread you have in your kitchen, you may have wonder bread, you may have gluten-free bread, you may have some sourdough bread, you may have used the recipe that was sent for our communion bread, but whatever bread you have and whatever cup you have available, we are here at the table. But before we come to the table, before we take the bread and the cup, I want to share a quote that a member who is a former elder sent to me when we were discussing having communion virtually. And the quote is from a brilliant late century work from an author who is familiar to Adventists called Ellen White, and she wrote this beautiful work on the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages. And I want to quote for you what that member sent to me with his emphasis and with his edits. It's important. So let's read this quote before we come to the table. So this is Ellen White writing. She says, to the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food, but is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. Then she continues, the cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf. And now what you're going to read in the yellow is the edit that this member sent to me who had spent time working as a missionary doctor in a place where bread was not available in a place where what we know as communion could not have been done. And so he puts in, in parenthesis that this daily food which is given and that the cross of Calvary, which is stamped on every loaf, could also mean whole wheat or white, raised or unleavened, cracker or rice cake, inshima or tortilla, oatmeal cookie. What is available? And then the quote continues from Ellen White. It is reflected in every water spring. All this Christ has taught in appointing the emblems of his great sacrifice. The light shining from that communion service in the upper chamber makes sacred the provisions of our daily life. What you have in your pantry, the cross of Christ makes sacred on what you put on your table and what you have before you today as we come to the table. The family board becomes as the table of the Lord and every meal 
a sacrament. And so at this time, hopefully you have your bread, you have your cup, and you're ready to join us, to join the body of Christ dispersed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes this, recollecting that great meal of the Lord, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.